0: Thank you so much uh, for coming today to visit some thoughts that uh, we have on Sabbath, and how the thought of Sabbath extends to the whole creation, and how Sabbath is much bigger, much bigger concept than just a day of the week. And I wanted to start with Dr. Tonstadt's slide, his beginning slide from last time, to get some continuity to this presentation. Um, but also to start asking the question of um, of of how Sabbath is much bigger than than we've been thinking of it, and how that is related to how we deal with how humans deal with the non-human <coughs> sorry the non-human world. And so I think today that my talk will address almost all of these um, all of these concepts, um, at least from appraisal and delight all the way down to gift. Um, But I'll let you be the judge of that. So uh, I just wanted to start by telling you that I was told by a pastor once that I needed to be willing to die for the Sabbath. And I thought that sounded very noble at the time. And I I thought, but as I thought about it, I realized that I would have to really conjure up a lot of courage and, and strength to be able to die for a day of the week. I wasn't really sure how that was going to work. But as I've studied the Sabbath uh, over the last few years, especially as as I've read Dr. Tonson's book, I've come to understand Sabbath is much bigger than just a day of the week. And when you think about how how much Sabbath um, floods into every aspect of the human life, then you start to see that um, that that there's much more to it, and that there might even you know even to the to the level of human identity, uh, to the level of, of any creature identity, uh, then you might start to to say maybe I could die for for the Sabbath or for the concept of Sabbath. Sabbath in the big sense is much more than just a day of the week. The big sense of Sabbath extends into every aspect of human and non-human life, to the levels of society, economy, environment, public health, and even individual identity. According to S.R. Hirsch, ancient Levite cities were round in construction and included a green belt around the outside perimeter with size specifications. On the outer brink of the green belt were the, the crop fields. And this is important to me because I think um, in that space, this was a place where humans and non-humans could sort of relate and come together. It was kind of like a park space, as I understand it. I wanted to, um, to have you look at Wendell Berry's uh, Sabbath, sixth Sabbath poem. Wendell Berry has, has written uh, ten Sabbath poems, which he has published, over the years, and they're included in the Timber Choir, one of his um, books. And this is Sabbath poem number six, and it relates directly to my talk today. Um, do we have anybody who would be willing to read the poem? It's a really easy poem to read. It's got a good rhyme structure. Thank you.
1: What mood will stand, though all be fallen? The good return, the time the stolen. Though creatures groan in misery, their flesh prefigures liberty. To end travail and bring to birth their new perfection in the earth. At word of that enlivening, let the trees and the woods all sing. And every field rejoice, let praise. Rise up out of the ground like grass. What stood, whole in every piecemeal. Thing that stood, will stand through all. Fall field and woods and all in them. Rejoin the primal
0: Sabbaths again. Okay, thank you. Here we see that Wenselberry connects the Sabbath to an inclusive soteriology. I'm defining that here. Soteriology is a study of how one comes to be saved. And uh, I said one because I didn't say human, right? So how does how does everything on earth come to be saved? So I'm, I'm calling that inclusive soteriology. This is the thought that we're going to trace through history today, um, both poetic history and some theological history as well. And so in this poem, um, Wendell Berry uh, connects the Sabbath, the concept of Sabbath to, to salvation. And I think that that's uh, an important part. And as we will see, um, this thought has been streaming through history. Now I'm going to try to show you a video clip. If everything works well... It's from the film *Amazing Grace*. First scene of this film shows you how how it uh, there's a connection between great people who will strive to give voice to those who have no voice, and it's related even to the animal world. William Wilberforce is best known today for his long fight in Parliament for the abolition of the slave trade. But he also founded over 65 social welfare societies, including the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Later, Queen Victoria signified her approval, adding royal to the title. The opening scene of the film Amazing Grace shows a sickly Wilberforce stopping his carriage in the rain to stop a man from beating his horse, even though his reputation, Wilberforce's reputation, in Parliament caused him to be recognized. He did not consider such activities to be beneath him seeking to advocate for those who had no voice. Wilberforce's household contained a menagerie of wild animals, including a wild hare. Pet-keeping practices go back much further, of course. From ancient Greece, uh, Greek and Roman epitaphs, we see that from an antiquity, people have memorialized their pets. Alexander the Great and Hadrian both kept pets. Although pet-keeping in antiquity cro- uh, sorry, crossed the bounds of social status, there are companion animal depictions in medi- sorry medieval and post-medieval art. Uh, for example, you might see a piece where a, um, a monk in a cell, maybe in 7th century or 8th century England, and a cat is sitting in the corner of that picture. Uh, you might also see a tiny dog taking a nap in the lap of a Chinese concubine, or a sleek greyhound lifting his paw to get a thorn removed. And I wanted to um, maybe pass this book around. Depictions of um, artwork in 18th and 19th century. If you want to take a look, there's a depiction in there of Sir Walter Scott and his dog Maida. And Sir Walter Scott made his dog famous because he wrote about his dog in his poems. So, uh, along with Wilbur, Wilbur, uh, sorry, William Wilberforce, we have um, Jeremy Bentham, who is also uh, known as an animal advocate. Um, the end of the 18th century so in in British and in in French history um, animal advocacy goes back at least to uh, the the end of the 18th century at least that's where historians have placed it but there's evidence now that it goes back even further um, when we look at poetry and that's what we're going to look at today is the poetry of two men in particular who were working in the early 18th century and um, we're going to see what they have to say about animals. Jeremy Bentham, philosopher and advocate of utilitarianism, also urged that care be taken to alleviate the suffering of animals. It was during this time that the greatest numbers of vivisections were being performed. It has been said that not a single dog could be found in the streets of Paris, as the scientists competed to publish new findings, although some were more disturbed than others by the pleading eyes and howling voices. One very cruel practice was to use live birds inside mechanical toys in order to make them move. The scene that we saw with Wilberforce stopping the carriage reminds me of one of my favorite quotations by Ellen White in The Desire of Ages. Could I get a reader for this one?
2: Jesus was the fountain of healing mercy to the world. And through all those, including years of Nazareth, his life flowed out in currents of sympathy and aged and sorrowing, and a sin birth. the children at play in their innocent joy, the little creatures of the groves, the patient beasts of burden. All were happier for his presence. He, whose worried of power, upheld the world, would stoop to relieve a wounded bird. There was nothing beneath his nose, nothing to which he was dis- stained. to
0: minister. Okay, so um, just wanted to refresh our memory that Christ himself was uh, somebody who would reach down to care for small animals. Okay, now we're going to switch gears and talk about a, another concept that is related to uh, what we'll see in the poetry today. And um, this is being defined by Richard Balcom, and it's I think the term can help us to express the kinship between humans and nonhumans that were, was established at creation and that will be again in the new earth. And so it's defined here as um, ideal conditions of human flourishing. That regularly feature the non-human creation and imagine ideal relationships between humans and other creatures, both flora and fauna. And how does this play out in theology? Interesting thing is that there are connections um, backward and forward. So we, uh, Ecotopia points backward as well as pointing forward historically. In the next few slides, we will trace a history of a theological idea through several centuries, noting the oscillating relationship between past and future. So again, um, it, it can, we can look at the overarching theme of the Bible and the eschatological sense. Um, we're also going to be looking um, backwards at the protological sense. And we'll start with a, a verse... In Romans eight. If we could get a reader for this one. And you'll want to wait for the mic so we can hear you.
1: For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him he subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage of decay. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been growing together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, growing inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons.
0: So, beginning with this thought, we're going to see how theologians, since Paul, have uh, interpreted. Uh, these ideas here and we'll start with Augustine although we'll eventually go backwards but 4th century Augustine saying for living creatures show their love of bodily peace by their avoidance of pain and by their pursuit of pleasure to satisfy the demands of their appetites they demonstrate their love of peace of soul in just the same way by shunning death they indicate quite clearly how great is their love of the peace in which soul and body are harmoniously united this thought here is um, given by Andrew Lindsay in his book, and he he is giving this idea that uh, Augustine here gives us the kind of the uh, basic idea that there might be something to uh, animal soul or or um, the idea that animals uh, are sentient and and they deserve more thought than they've had before. So we'll start with Augustine, then we're going to move backwards, and I know I have a reader for this slide. We'll start with St. Irenaeus in the 2nd century.
3: And this is our Lord, who in the last times was made man, existing in this world, and who in an invisible manner contains all things created, and is inherent to the entire creation, so the Word of God governs and arranges all things.
0: Again, the idea of creation... Uh, the whole creation being a part of uh, God's plan of redemption. And John of the Cross.
3: But also in this image of his son alone, God left all things clothed with beauty, communicating to them supernatural being. This was when he became a man, and thus exalted man in the beauty of God, and consequently exalted all the creatures in him. Since then, uniting himself with man, united himself with all the nature of them all.
0: So, um, from from the 2nd century to the 16th century, we have a continuance of thought here. And um, this will be, again, continued in John Calvin's, one of his sermons. Um, Can I get a reader for this slide? Thank you.
1: Because the creatures are subject to corruption, not through their normal natural desire, but by God's appointment, and also because they have a hope of being free hereafter from corruption, it follows that they groan like a woman in labor until they have been delivered. This is the most appropriate comparison to inform us that the groaning of which he speaks will not be in vain or without effect. It will finally bring forth a joyful and happy fruit. In short, the creatures are not content with their present condition and yet they are not so distressed as to pine away through immediately. They are, however, in labor because they are waiting to be renewed to a better state. By saying that they've grown together, he does not mean that they are bound together by common anxiety, but he connects them with us as our companions.
0: And so... um Looking again at the 16th century, and then let's move forward once more to uh, the 19th century. John Wesley. I get one more reader. If we stand
2: through a few particulars, the whole creation will then undoubtedly be restored, not only to the vigor, strength, and swiftness with which they had in their creation, but to a far bigger, greater degree of each than they ever enjoyed. They will be restored not only to that measure of understanding which they had in paradise, but to a degree a bit much higher than that, as the understanding of an elephant is beyond that of a worm. They will suffer no more, either from within or without. The days of their groaning are ended. They shall enjoy happiness suited to their state, without alloy, without interruption, and without end.
0: So again, we hear the echoes of Romans 8 coming through the centuries. Let's move on and see if if, uh, this will inspire any controversy or commentary. Okay, well, I want to start with the poet Richard Lewis, early American poet, colonial poet. He was uh, from Wales, and he was educated at Harvard briefly before he came to to, to the colonies as a um, tutor and he was a tutor of latin and because he read so much latin poetry he became himself a neoclassical poet and so his models were virgil and theocritus and and um, other classical poets Um, uh, he came to maryland and once there he started to to get caught up in in the natural science that was happening at that time, uh, people were collecting specimens from the Americas and sending them back over to England to the royal society and So he started getting involved in that he He sent reports one of his reports was on a on a, a very loud bang that he heard over the river and he couldn 't figure out what that was, but he reported that to the Royal Society and uh, Anything that he heard or, or things that he could gather and collect, he would send. Um, And there were lots of people doing this at this time. Um, He is best known for his poem, A Journey from Patapsco in Maryland to Annapolis, in which he describes the early landscapes of woodland, meadow, and river as he rides his horse um, from his house to the ferry. Um, as Lewis writes about his journey, he names and describes birds in a very similar way to the descriptions found in natural historian Mark Catesby's, in um, sorry his etchings. Catesby published his etchings shortly before Lewis published his poem, so there's a relationship uh, between these two as as uh, to when they were publishing their works, and um, I'm going to show you in. In a couple of slides, I'll show you uh, some of Mark Catesby's works. Catesby was a natural historian, artist, and pre Audubon. So um, the difference between Catesby and Audubon is that Catesby liked to take his subjects live, whereas Audubon, unfortunately, typically killed them before he would uh, paint them. But um, Catesby is also known, uh, he was very interested in botany. So the bird pictures that you, you see um, are always in context with a plant that they would probably be uh, sitting on. Uh, the other poem I want to examine uh, briefly is his poem to Mr. Samuel Hastings, Shipwright of Philadelphia. Uh, this early Lewis poem congratulated his friend and shipwright Samuel Hastings on the launching of his ship, he uses the image of Noah's ark to insert an inclusive soteriology. So, could I get a reader for this passage, please? It's very interesting as far as what he includes and the imagery as well.
1: The wondrous ark, built by divine command, rose slowly underneath thy forming hand. Finished at length, the mighty work appears. The labor of and hundred rolling years within its womb the universal race of insects beasts birds men obtain a place who in due time should meet a second birth and with their offspring fill the future earth
0: so you can see here he even includes insects in in this scheme and um the imagery of the ark as a womb, I think, is is very um, illuminating in, in a certain sense and intriguing in a certain sense. Um, anybody want to comment on this poem? We see the pointing backward and, and the pointing forward again, right? To this idea of inclusiveness. So this was this a kind of thing that poets at the time were thinking of. In Food for Critics, I'm going to see another, something else emerging. This is Lewis's most direct address against animal cruelty. The title of the poem is an allusion to his uh, his poetry critics as well as his political ones. So he's kind of putting his his poetry out there, saying, okay, I know that I'm going to be criticized by the poets, but as well, I have a political idea that will probably... um, Gain some uh, critique as well, and this is the the one of the pictures of Mark Catesby's birds. Uh, La Sierra University, by the way, has a a facsimile of Catesby's edition, and it's absolutely it's the biggest folio I've ever seen. It's actually downstairs, kept away in the vault, and I think when I opened it up, I was probably the first person to ever lay eyes on it because it was it was ever it just looked very new and crisp and clean. Um, but it's very beautiful. Um, the pictures are. are brilliant in color, and um, he has quite a few bird pictures as well as other animal pictures. So this is how uh, birds w- and other animals would be depicted in uh, the early 18th century. Okay, so in, in Lewis's poem, we get the sense that birds have an elevating role in human life. Their songs provide necessary inspiration to the human soul spirit. Take pattern from the merry piping quail, observe the bluebird ber- blue for a roundelay, the chattering pie or ever babbling jay, the plaintive dove the soft lovers can t- uh, sorry teach, and mimic thrash to imitators preach. In Pindar's strain, the lark salutes the dawn, the lyric robin chirps the even on, evening on. And so the, the idea here is that bird song is necessary to humans, and the birds can even provide an example for how humans can live. Okay, at the close of the poem, he gives us a surprise. It, you, you don't really see it, it coming because throughout this long poem, there's, there's been a lot of description of beauty and birds and animals, and then suddenly he brings in a polemic. So the idea that we shouldn't go out to harm the animals. And he again points back to Eden as a way of of helping us understand that that there can be continuity of how we treat the non-human world. He alludes to the Age of Gold and that the ruling temper there was that there was kinship between humans and all creatures. Okay, um, just to point out that his poetry is um, in the line of, of Virgil and other classical poets here. But I also like this picture, so I thought I'd just bring it to your attention. Okay, so Lewis has been compared to the British poet James Thompson who lived uh, about the same time. You'll notice that Lewis, uh, unfortunately, uh, died quite early in his life. and He wasn't even 40 when he died. And um, Thompson um, also died early, but uh, lived a little bit longer than, than Lewis. But Thompson uh, was writing just a, a little bit before Lewis, so that we can say that it was Thompson who influenced Lewis. He is well-known for penning a poem that became the Royal Navy theme song in in Britain, and he published The Seasons, which is probably his best-known work. He published it serially between 1726 and 1730. It was a poem that he continued to work on for the rest of his life. And so the seasons are there, uh, starting with winter and ending with autumn. Um, one, one of the things about Thompson I wanted to point out was that he, was, he had a high respect for science. And what he would do to compose his poetry is he would read a science treatise, and he would take the language from the science treatise and just convert it into poetry, almost line for line. So you can actually uh, pick out different scientists in his work that way. And uh, it was his best way of describing what he would see. So we're going to start with spring. Spring. And it, a Spring is an extended narrative of a bird family in which the family roles represent humankind through analogy. Toward the end of Spring, Thompson layers his analogy with anti-slavery rhetoric, thinly veiled, and at the same time demonstrates regard for kinship between humans and non-humans. And if we could get somebody to read this slide. Being on the news,
1: ashamed here to mourn her brothers the grove.
3: By tyrant men, human caught, and in the narrow cage from which he's confined, and boundless tail. Dull are the pretty slaves, their plumage dull, ragged, and all its brightness must be lost. Nor is the sprightly wildness in their notes, which clear and vigorous warbles from them. Of warbles from the Greek beach. Oh, then, ye friends of love and love taught song,
1: spare the soft drives. This is art forbear. If on your bosom innocence can win, music engage,
3: for poetry, persuade.
0: So again, we see uh, the connection uh, here between. Uh, he's, he's driving the connection between slavery and the way that some animals are treated, locked up in cages. In Autumn, he adds an anti-hunting polemic, which is another idea that connects his poetry to Lewis's. Could I get somebody to read this passage from Autumn?
1: O oh, let not, aimed from some inhuman eye, Begun the music of the coming year, Destroyed and harmless, unsuspecting harm lay the weak tribes a miserable prey in mingled murder fluttering on the ground
0: okay in winter which is his longest poem uh, we see um, again the uh, the idea of the inclusive soteriology and this is probably the most powerful um, of all the passages I think I'll go ahead and read this one Tis come, the glorious morn, the second birth of heaven and earth, awakening nature hears the new creating word and starts to life in every height and form, from pain and death forever free. The great eternal scheme involving all, and in a perfect whole uniting, as the prospect wider spreads, to reason's eye refined clears up apace. Ye vainly wise, ye blind presumptuous, now confounded in the dust. Adore that power and wisdom oft-arranged. And so again, you can see in the first uh, few lines of this poem that we have the idea of, of a mourning, of the um, redemption morning, And, and it's, uh, the salvation is being extended again to every creature, and even to the earth itself. And the end of the poem is again trying to uh, embrace that concept. Ye good distressed, ye noble few, who here unbending stand beneath life's pressure, yet a little while, and what your bounded view, which only saw a little part, deemed evil is no more. The storms of wintry time will quickly pass, and one unbounded spring encircle all. So again, the idea of, of something that is inclusive. Okay, so we have a scriptural ethic that is uh, running through these passages, and uh, I wanted to move to what the Jewish echo critics say about um, the relationship between humans and non humans. So I'm reading here from Ellen Davis's book called Scripture, Culture, and Agriculture. I know that some of you know about this book and you like this book. And uh, I'll just read this passage. Taken as a whole, biblical law seeks to inculcate a precise awareness of physical being, of human life in a particular place, the land of Canaan shared with other creatures, trees and birds and animals, whose own lives are precious and vulnerable. So this idea that animal life and um, other, other uh, non-human life, t- trees, plants, um, they have value in and of themselves. They're not just valuable valuable because we as humans place value on them. They have their own inherent value. And uh, just to add in some antecedents from the Old Testament, we have from Genesis 9, 8 through 9, and I've added an interpretation from the Rabbi Everett Gendler here. Um, this is uh, the passage where uh, Noah and his family have come off the ark, and they're receiving the blessing from God. And God says to them in Genesis 9, 8 through 9, I now establish my covenant with you and your offspring to come, and with every living thing that is with you, birds, cattle, and every wild beast as well, all that have come out of the ark, every living thing on earth. So uh, according to Gendler, in this passage, both these terms uh, that mean covenant and sign apply to all living creatures and to the earth, actually the earth as well, not only to humans. And if I could get somebody to read this, this passage from Jeremy Benstein's work on the Torah. Thank you, David. The Torah affirms three central
3: propositions regarding animals for treatment, that although, although they are honorable, they are more than chattel that, chattel. chattel. that they do indeed suffer, and that it is incumbent upon most to minimize that suffering they are dealing with them as well as laws of the separation of milk and meat, the life of the animal instead, feeding domestic animals, being uh, animals before oneself, and critical attitudes to hunting among others.
0: Uh, One thing that this reminds me of is there is a law, and I think it's Leviticus, um, where if you remove eggs from a nest, you're not to kill the mother bird. And, and that, that's kind of an interesting law, if you think about it. Um, in a way, it sort of promotes continuity of the species. Um, but there's also this idea that it's sort of um, dishonorable to kill the mother along with the, the babies. So I, I think that that's all, that thought is also there. Also, um, here, uh, this is the first place I've ever seen somebody try to interpret the idea of, of why the goat could not be why the baby goat could not be cooked in its mother's milk. Um, Again, there's this kind of idea of dishonor, um, of the continuity of life. I had a student, a Navajo student, uh, several years ago who gave a speech on, um, they they do animal sacrifice in their culture as well, and he gave a speech on how he had to learn how to kill an animal um, ethically um, with minimal pain. And so he told about the difference between uh, slitting the neck in a certain way uh, so that the, the animal did not bleed to death, but rather died sort of like, I guess, quick suffocation. And so there, there was a, that idea, like you said, that minimizing the pain, even in that culture, I guess. Okay, so um, this leads to... Um, very good segue actually into uh, another idea Um, uh, I'm going to ask the question here um, how does theology or soteriology translate into social action or political action Um, according to Ellen F. F. Davis um, 60% of the 95 million hog slaughters each year occur at only four large farms Um, 2,000 pigs are slaughtered every hour if the sun gun misses its mark, the pig falls, screaming into scalding water. And so, you know, there's this idea that in the 20th century, 21st century, um, animal cruelty has risen to this, this all-time high in a certain sense, um, the power that man has to inflict pain on on animals. And um, I've noticed most people we kind of like to shut our ears to it in a certain sense because it just seems so horrible, and it is horrible. Um, this, um, you know, this organization, Farm Sanctuary, has actually made a lot of progress in, in trying to shut down some of these bigger factory farms. Um, but the idea that, um, that a, uh, an animal could be kept in a cage all of its life without ever feeling soil or sunshine or grass um, should speak to our hearts in a certain sense. I also included a quotation here by Ellen White. It says, animals have a kind of dignity and self-respect akin to that possessed by human beings. If abused under the influence of blind passion, their spirits will be crushed. And again, I think that that should speak to our hearts um, as, as people who have concern uh, for the non-human world especially if we think about back to this idea that if, if soteriology, if, if salvation is going to be ex- extended to the whole creation, then maybe um, that sort of elevates the status of these non-human uh, forms in a certain sense. There's, there's a couple of comments. Um, I
2: see several distinct things arising here. One is obviously our, our need to... Treat creation with respect and dignity and compassion. And I think that we could derive that from a lot of these texts that we've read in Scripture, uh, including the covenant that God made with Noah that He would not again destroy the earth with water. Um, Looking back at uh, Wesley's and uh, and Calvin's um, thoughts regarding Romans 8, they seem to. Say that we have, well, the, the idea of bondage—that that all of creation is in bondage and is groaning and waiting for some deliverance—clearly, um, I, I personally can take from that that the, there will be a restoration in which life that then will be will be without suffering and will, will not be in this state of bondage. The, the other question you're talking about soteriology, so. The, the other question that I think is a, an altogether distinct idea mm-hmm. is whether animals have souls mm-hmm. that, you know, that uh, can be saved. Whether, I have no, no doubt from Romans 8 that <coughs> in the New Earth that there will be animals who, you know, who will not be suffering. Will they be the same animal that was on this earth, you know, the same memory and, and, and so forth. So that's that's another um, issue, and I'm I interested in kind of
0: what where you're going with this. Okay. Now you're anticipating one of the next slides, actually, but there was another comment.
3: Just like to go back to the slaughtering of animals. I was at a birthday party back in Nebraska a few weeks ago. My brother in turned 80, and he's uh, a veteran. And uh, one of the gentlemen that was there worked for I Will Be Packed. Now, that's the headquarters right there in the city where mm-hmm. my sister was. And uh, he was sharing with me that he had been on the kill floor for 20 years. Mm-hmm. And his whole responsibility was to slaughter critters that came through the line mm-hmm. for 20 years. And you stop to think, what the big influence that must have on a person
1: mm-hmm.
3: who his whole life is spent.
0: David, yes, thank you. Davis's book details that and there's a connection between the human and the animal suffering because the the workers on the kill floor have to wear earplugs so they can't hear the the screaming. Um, and and I, I read the one from Ecclesiastes here earlier. But the idea is um, that this, this verse, for the righteous knows the soul of his animal. Um, it's also been translated as life. That word soul has been translated as life. So I did go back to try to see what the word was. And evidently the word for soul here is the is the word nephesh. And um, that is the same word used. Um, in Genesis when God is breathing a living soul into man so it's it's very it's an interesting question and I I'm not going to try to argue either way um, on this on this idea I certainly think that it's possible for God to save any creature knowing the DNA code of everything that lives um, and everything that has lived and so it's certainly possible Um, trying to think of the name of the the author of the book, um, Will My Pet Go to Heaven? It's been published in the Adventist book, um, one, of the, one of the Adventist presses. Who was it? Steve Wolbert. Yes, Steve, Steve Wolbert, that's right. Um, after the death of his, his dog, um, who was hit by a car, um, he started to examine the Bible for anything he could find to have hope that he would see his dog again. And he ended on the answer of yes, he thinks that they will be there. Um, but that, that, of course, is a kind of debatable Idea, Um, I think it's possible. I think it's certainly possible. Um, And I'd be willing to hear what you think as well. Uh, Jeremy uh, Benstein's comment here, I think it's interesting. Being righteous necessitates not only providing for animals as one would for any property, but also acquiring intimate knowledge of the animal's self. The idea that animals have a self. This is neither abstract nor instrumental knowledge. It is part of a relationship, and as anybody who has had a pet will attest, the knowledge and resultant obligation is mutual. So how many here have had pets? I'm just curious, (laughs) or have them currently. Okay. Now we can divide a room really quickly by asking how many here are dog lovers? Okay, how many here are cat lovers? <laughs> okay, see? <laughs> Anybody here who loves bows? <laughs> okay, we have a few of those here, animal loving. So uh, you kind of, you know, that this idea that you know the soul of your animal. Do you feel like that's true? Do you know the soul of your animal? Can you look into your animal's eyes and see something there um, that's, that is important? Okay, I think that we would like to see our, our animals again. Oh, yes, let's not divide plant and animal. Okay. Are there any plant people in the room? Botany, botany people in the room? That's a good question. <laughs> okay, yes, absolutely. We don't want to avoid that. My talk today was more on animals, but yes. <laughs> I, I do
2: actually want to make a distinction because the body, uh, excuse me, just as a sense the the breath of body, mm-hmm. uh, and, and then you can make salt. So body, plus the breath. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's have like been sitting here taking water.
0: Fish, or, you know, where, where do we make... It's a great question. It's a great question, and it, it's a highly debated question in, in the literature. So, and even in, even in literature that doesn't consider this subject, really. I mean, I think a lot of people try to consider that question when they think of animal ethics. You know. Okay, so um, I wanted to include this passage um, from Ellen White on. The subject of abusing animals, because it just gives us a sense that, um, that God sees, you know, that God sees this issue as as important. Um, She says, there were beasts in Eden, and there will be beasts in the earth made new. Unless the men who have indulged in cruelty towards God's creatures here, overcome that disposition and become just, or sorry, become like Jesus, kind and merciful, they will never share in the inheritance of the righteous. They would, if they're exercise the same spirit. That had not been overcome here. All disposition to cause pain to our fellow men or to the brute creation is satanic. Now, I realize I'm preaching to the choir here, but, but I, I think that that's an important statement. And last but not least, um, although uh, my uh, revered—I, um, uh, I, I, I revered this this uh, this student. Uh, he's he's actually um, an ethologist. And has anybody read? Um, mark beckoff's work lately okay well he wrote the animal uh the sorry the animal rights manifesto and uh he was at the conference that i recently attended last summer and basically uh because of his extensive work with animals where he's actually interacting with them not just observing them from a distance he indicates that um that and he's pro-vegetarian i'm not necessarily necessarily um being pro-vegetarian here, but I thought it was an interesting quotation to use in this presentation because uh, it kind of raises, again, raises the status of the animal. So he says it's not so much a matter of what you are eating as who you are eating perhaps. And he's dealing probably more with personality issues, uh, but I thought it kind of fit into the idea of of uh, animals as living souls, that kind of thing.
2: I just had a question, something I've been wondering about. You quote from Ellen White, of- Mentions uh, cruelty towards God's creatures. And and I wonder for myself is there a subtle cruelty that we, even as Christians, partake in mm-hmm. by the products we use or the things we consume? Uh, you know, if we're using eggs and those chickens are on a farm and they're not seeing the light and sun. Mm-hmm. I've got a leather purse. Yeah. Oh, and. I don't see the creature that has to, you know, give up his life so I have leather. I mean, what are we to do? What what does God expect? Did Jesus wear leather sandals? I mean, I'm just curious. Any thoughts?
0: Well, I'd like to open it up to the audience first before I respond. Any, any thoughts on
4: I think that's an excellent, developed point. When I was young, I grew up on a small farm. We actually ate our pets. Uh, and we made you, Julie. They were really tasty, but... <laughs> but... Now, when I go to Standard Brothers, I wonder, where did this need really come from? And, and I really don't want to contribute to... As much as that guy in Nebraska needs that job, for 20 years, Mm -hmm. I really don't want to contribute to that kind of thing because what I grew up with was far, far, far different than what we do now when we go to Kentucky Fried Chicken or McDonald's. And now I've I've actually made a conscious choice. I go to Clark's and I get their organic grass-fed beef and it costs more and so I eat less. And that's the way I'm kind of weaning myself up. But I think that's a very valid point. I mean, what are we doing when I look back at what Ellen White has to say and, and the reasons for being a vegetarian, I, I think that the argument really is not so much as maybe necessarily it's, it's a healthier way of life as much as, as because I don't think that eating meat is going to kill me from heart disease. I think I'm going to get a bad piece of meat and die from some disease that this to from, from the food chain, which going on out there, and that's the concern. So, I've made a conscious choice and I just would hope that other people would too because this, this corporate production of meat it's, it's not part of that's plan. It's the opposite.
3: Right. But the problem with corporate in the vegetable uh, world now is that now all the hybrid vegetables, they may look nice and all, but they may not be getting the nutrients that you thought you were getting from the tomato that your grandmother did.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I, I do shop at the uh, the uh, market here on the Sunday mornings in Melinda, and there is a building that grows it down. So I try to avoid the uh, stuff. Yes. possibly choices.
0: I, I love the fact that there are so many um, farmers' markets in this area that where we can get some of these things in fresh supply.
1: How do we convert our dogs to vegetarian?
0: <laughs> I have the <yeah>. answer <laughs> my, my dogs have been vegetarian almost all their lives actually
2: <laughs>
0: well now there's a difference between voluntary vegetarianism and involuntary vegetarianism <laughs> um, if you throw a hot dog at them they'll, they'll eat it <laughs> but uh, yeah I actually uh, there's there's vegetarian dog food you can buy and, and that's how I do it But they love carrots and broccoli and I bring Bring things home from the farmers market, and instead of chewing bones, they chew they chew broccoli, and they don't seem to, you know, they they haven't really seen pig ears, so they don't know what they're missing yet. I guess that's (laughs) 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 that part of uh, being more aware of what's happening uh, leads us to make those kinds of decisions for ourselves, and I think that's where the answer really is. You have to decide for yourself how extreme do I want to go. I think. Did you have a comment as well?
3: Yes. I'm here for the CHIP conference, okay. <laughs> but I'm also a veterinarian.
0: Oh, oh wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> um,
3: I, I've i struggled somewhat because I support with um, contributions organizations like Heifer International, even uh, ADRA, and they advocate placing... Uh, individual animals, one or two animals with families in some of these poverty-stricken countries. And I actually, uh, Dr. Tonstead had an address to the the CHIP conference on Wednesday night. And so I asked to have an appointment with him on Thursday because I've I've struggled with this. Um, uh, I Actually, when I was in veterinary school, one of the jobs I had was cleaning up in the necropsy room which is the same as autopsies but when you're dealing with animals it's called necropsies and I decided at that point that uh, getting rid of the majority of animal products was the wise thing to do uh, and my wife and I and our family led a lacto-ovo vegetarian diet for a number of years and now in the last few years we've become totally plant based so I but I struggle with well, I'm giving money to these organizations that are providing animals. And so Dr. Donstead and I had a nice conversation. He men- he felt like that society progresses. And if we look at what the United States was, and England and some of these other developed more developed countries were over the United States back in the 17 and 1800s, the animals definitely provided a place in our in our culture and I know even when I grew up on a small farm that people often had two or three cows and they were treated respectfully um, so it's not to say that in certain cultures animals may not provide a, a place uh, and I believe that that's if you look at God's will, I think that's His circumstantial will sure. where we live right now, not His divine will. Yeah. Um, but I think in industrialized countries like we have now, you mentioned earlier uh, that slaughtering of, of hogs, I think it's controlled by about three or four companies. And it's called agribusiness, it's not called farming anymore. And these animals are treated terribly. Mm-hmm. I think we have to view all of those
0: different aspects. Yes, thank you for that comment. And I think that is um, one of the best answers, I think, is when you can look at the difference between what, what God wills because we're in a certain circumstance versus what He would ultimately will, you know, we weren't in this circumstance. Thank you for your comments. Appreciate those. Okay, well, we're uh, out of time, actually, but um, just I don't know how many of you can stay back, but I wanted to just show you a piece of what I think of is heaven on earth. Kevin Richardson uh, works with um, wild animals that have, have been tamed to some degree on his uh, preserve in Africa um, close to Johannesburg, and I'm just going to... Um, play this i don't think we're going to have a lot of sound the music is very inspiring so if you want to look at the link and and take a look at this at home but i i just wanted you to see um maybe just uh, a way in which we don't have to stretch our imagination so much anymore to think of how we could interact with some of the animals we've um, always been afraid of so i'll just let this play and when you have to leave go ahead I, i just wanted to play as you're leaving so you can see part of this